Daniel chapter 7. Yesterday was Lincoln's birthday, right? I learned something new about our 16th president this week. His law partner, friend, and sometimes bodyguard, Ward Hill Lehman, wrote that only a few days before his assassination, Lincoln told a small circle of friends, including him, Lehman, that in a dream he had what can be described as a premonition of his own death. In the dream, Lincoln saw the body of the president on display in the East Room of the White House after having been assassinated. It seems though he hadn't been worried about the dream at all. It's reported that Lincoln assured Lehman as some other fellow had been killed, it wasn't me. Uh, But a few days later, Lincoln was shot and was in fact put on display in the East Room. Interesting. We've been moving through Daniel chapter 7 where our hero has had an amazing dream. It's an overview of God's prophetic plan for mankind. It culminates in the overthrow of the Antichrist and his final world empire, and then the establishing of the millennial kingdom with Christ reigning forevermore. But unlike Abraham Lincoln, Daniel is extremely concerned and distressed by what he saw unfolding in this vision. And in our text this evening, he's going to seek out an explanation of what these things mean. It's an interesting reversal Right? Usually people are coming to Daniel asking for explanations of dreams, and here he's having a dream, and he's having to ask what this stuff is all about. So we pick back up in verse 15 of chapter 7. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I don't know if you're the type to have bad dreams. Maybe you can think back to a time where you had you know, a particularly powerful nightmare and woke up in a sweat, right? And you're freaked out for a second, but the scare of the dream usually passes pretty quickly, right? You think, oh, okay, I wasn't really being eaten by a carpet monster. I'm just still in my own bed. And then you can calm down pretty quickly, uh, usually. But Daniel, he's not so lucky. I mean, he's not even awake yet. And he describes himself here as being just grieved and terrified, uh, super freaked out. Now, there's a nice piece of language that scholars bring out of this verse, When he says, within my body there, the words mean this, in the sheath. And uh, it's just a nice sentiment to think about before we pass on to some of these other things. It's just a lovely reminder that your soul and your spirit makes you who you are. Your body is simply a little sheath that holds the sword, right? And when you see a a sword in a sheath, uh, you want to pull that thing out and take a look because that's the beautiful thing. That's the work of art. That's the, the thing that lasts. And so uh, just a great reminder, uh, for a couple of years, we did what was called release time education for the high school. And one of the things we would talk to the kids about is a worldview class, biblical worldview. And one of the things we would talk to them about is say, hey, your body is not who you are. And I know that's true because if you got in a car accident t- tonight, you know, any one of you, and they had to amputate your arm and you showed up to church on Sunday, pretty fast recovery, good for you. But if you showed up for church on Sunday, you would still be the same person, right? It's because your body's not who you are. It's your soul and your spirit is who you are. As Christian author and minister George MacDonald once said, never tell a child you have a soul. Teach him you are a soul. You have a body. Hate to ruin this for you, but C.S. Lewis did not say that, did not write that. We all think he did. We all say he did. It was George MacDonald. Verse 16, I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he uh, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. God loves it when people turn aside to seek wisdom from him. You know, it was when Moses turned aside to examine the burning bush that then God spoke to him. It was when the disciples came asking Jesus that he explained the parables to them. 
When we come asking God for answers and for wisdom, he doesn't furrow his brow and say, I'm too busy to meet with you right now. I'm working on stuff. Come back later. Uh, We see here, and the pattern is repeated with the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation, that when these guys, Daniel and John, are seeing these visions and they they draw over and they say, hey, what's going on here? Uh, The Lord has provided a tutor for them and a tour guide to sort of walk them through what they're witnessing. And that's not the case just for prophetic visions. James says this in uh, chapter 1, verse 5 of his letter, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. And so we want to be people who turn aside for wisdom, because there's a lot we don't know, a lot we can't understand, uh, and some of those things we will never understand on this side of eternity, but there's a lot of things that God is like, yeah, I want you to understand. I want to give you wisdom for this situation or this circumstance, but I'm going to wait till you ask me for it. And so the Bible encourages us to be people who are humble enough and bold enough to ask God for understanding. You know, God doesn't want to hide away uh, and separate himself from us. In fact, he makes provisions for those who come seeking his wisdom. Verse 17 says, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. So this angel who is there among uh, the host in verse 10 is now explaining some things to Daniel. Now, wait just a second. I thought last week we said that the four beasts are four kingdoms, and here it says that they're kings. The answer is yes and yes. The same pattern we saw in the vision of the great image in chapter 2 is found here. The kings and their kingdoms are connected. With each successive empire, there is an individual ruler who is particularly associated or highlighted. We remember back in Daniel chapter 2 when he's explaining to Nebuchadnezzar his dream, which parallels this dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But then in the very next verse, he goes on to say, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And so here in chapter 7, the beasts are identified with individual kings, but also we'll read in verse 23, quote, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. And this, is, this isn't unusual, number one, in the Bible, we've already seen this pattern, but this isn't even unusual in the way that we think of things, in the way that we think of history, the way we think of, you know, geopolitics, Right? We don't think of the Soviet Union in history without Stalin. We don't think about Stalin without the Soviet Union. Uh, We don't think about Hitler without Nazi Germany and vice versa, or Mao and communist China, right? And in some cases of those empires, you know, Nazi Germany effectively died with Hitler. The Soviet Union didn't die with Stalin. It kept going. Some of these world empires survived that one dynamic leader that exploded the world empire onto the scene, and some of them did it. And the same pattern is seen here in these uh, visions that we're talking about. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. This angel that Daniel is speaking to gives really very little thought to the four beasts. He skips right over them. He wants to get to the end of the story where the rightful king is on the throne and all of that unpleasantness is dealt with. There are several points of interest here. First, we should note that the kingdom is received by the saints. It is not built by the saints. You know, we talk about in sort of Christian parlance, we talk about doing kingdom work in the here and now, and that's fine. That's great. You know, we can be about what we would call kingdom business, serving the Lord, you know, working toward that end and uh, according to those principles, that's all fine. 
Uh, but we are not the ones who build the kingdom for the king. It is God who does the work, and then he gives it to us, gives it to his son, and then to those of us who are uh, co-inheritors with the son, uh, anyone who believes on Jesus Christ for salvation. And that's the more important point. You and I won't just get to visit or vacation or take a tour in the kingdom. That would be pretty great, but that's not the arrangement. We receive this incredible gift as our own. The term there means to hold occupancy, to have royal authority. God actually gives his kingdom uh, to share with us. Imagine if you were, uh, you were gonna take a vacation to Disneyland. I'm sure there's maybe one or two of you out there, I don't wanna go to Disneyland. All right, substitute wherever you wanna go. But let's say you're gonna go to Disneyland, right? And that would be great to have a vacation in, in Disneyland. But upon arrival, as you walk up to the gate, there's a delegation there who pull you aside and they say, you're the owner now. This is all yours. Enjoy. And you say, well, I didn't do anything. I certainly don't have the money to buy Disneyland. Uh, and they say, no, no, it's all taken care of. Someone bought it for you and it's yours now. They gave it to you as a gift. I mean, that would be mind-blowing, right? That's so far-fetched, you know, it's laughable. And yet the king of heaven and earth has done this to an infinite degree. It's a stunning thing to think about, and we should be people who are thinking about that all the time. Unfortunately, at this point, Daniel wasn't able to marvel at this promise. He's still quite upset at what he'd seen and wants some further clarification. Verse 19 then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces, trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war with the saints and prevailing against them. Until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the, most, of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So this is a sort of a rehash of what Daniel reported earlier, and we've gone through that in previous weeks. There's a few additional details uh, added in. But Daniel is understandably bothered by the vision. I, I think we would be too if we saw that, especially the part where it says, and the, this horn is prevailing against the saints of the Most High. What's that about? Now, we have to remember that Daniel, right, he's a captive from Jerusalem. By this time, he's, you know, at least in middle age, maybe a little bit older. Uh, in fact, he's probably more towards the end of his life. But he's a captive from Jerusalem, and, and you know, as a good, believing Jew who trusts the Lord and, and has faith in the Lord, he's hoping that the ancient promises to Israel would soon be realized, right? Not just that they're going to be brought back from Babylon at some point, but that, no, all the promises to Abraham and all the promises to David, that when is that going to be realized? And instead, he just learned through this vision that there will be maybe centuries of delay before the ultimate restoration of God's people. And in the meantime, at some point, God's people were going to be brutally persecuted almost to extinction. And so no judgment on Daniel for his response. You know, we don't want to say, well, you should have been happy about the millennium, Daniel. I mean, there's no criticism of him. He's receiving all of this at once without the benefit of the other passages that we have to study. And it makes sense that he's so troubled about this. A couple of items for us here. First of all, 
it's important that we see just how different this fourth beast and the little horn are. In our verses tonight, three times we're going to be told it's different. He's different. He's different. It's different. That word keeps popping up if you're looking at the page. And this matters because there are some who try to say, well, the fourth beast was the uh, empire of Greece. Or the fourth beast was the uh, historic Roman Empire. That's all done with. Or they say, well, the little horn was this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. He, was, he lived during the Maccabean period. He did all of the things that Daniel's talking about. And so all of this is done. There's nothing coming in the future. You know, we're all just kind of in a limbo right now. We're either in the kingdom now or we build the kingdom. At some point, Jesus will come back. But none of this stuff is really going to happen in our future. But, you know, Daniel wants us to understand this is different. It's different. It's different. It's unlike any other empire. The Antichrist will be unlike any other ruler the world has ever known. Second, throughout this vision, we see a very clear flow of events. Though some of the images and the symbols are obviously difficult for us to wrap our minds around, the flow of events is pretty plain. If you were staging a play based upon this vision, you would know how to get from scene one to scene two to scene three, right? And you would know which characters enter stage left at this point and when they exit. It's very sort of sequential. There's a succession of empires. The fourth empire has a succession of a group of 10 rulers followed by one ruler. That final ruler is gonna do some stuff. Then heaven's gonna respond and then the son of man begins his reign and then the saints are given a kingdom forever and ever. And so we see again and again through this, this is a step-by-step laid out pro- process. And we see it in the language. Then this happened. Then this time came. Then this, then that. It's a timeline, right? The third note from this section of verses not only speaks to God's sovereignty over God, all things, but also God's justice. And you know, one of the big themes of uh, the book of Daniel that has come out a lot is the idea that, hey, God is sovereign no matter what is happening. God is the one in charge. He sets up rulers, he puts down rulers. It doesn't matter who's on the throne, God is still in charge. But here also we get to see just a great uh, shining example of God's justice. You know, in this world or in human history, it sometimes seems like might makes right, right? We see these, you know, these powerful actors or these powerful governments or whatever going out and doing, it seems like whatever they want to people, uh, then they overpower and steal and crush what, you know, those who are needy or those who are, you know, oppressed, and it seems like they do these things without consequence. Uh, But in the end, justice will prevail. Vengeance does belong to the Lord. The Ancient of Days will make his judgment. Righteousness will repay. And so we can count on God's justice. Now, the difficult part of this equation is, okay, well, that's all well and good. I trust that the Lord will settle that all in the end, but what about right now? I thought God's people were safe in God's hands, right? How do we square an idea with, and the saints of the Most High are prevailed against by the little horn, that he's crushing them and devouring them? How does that square, you know, with the security of being a child of God? If you're Daniel or, you know, even us reading this tonight, it's really not that far a leap to say, wait a minute wait a minute, what about all of the Bible verses that talk about God protecting his people and God rescuing his people and God, 
you know, keeping his people safe? Isn't he the rock on which we stand? There's so many verses like that, especially in the Psalms. Here's two of them. Psalm 138, verse 7. Though I am surrounded by troubles, you will protect me from the anger of my enemies. You reach out your hand and the power of your right hand saves me. Or what about Psalm 34, 19? The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. Okay, so what's the deal? Because that doesn't seem like it's actually happening in the world around us each time, right? And this is something, a topic that we talk a good amount here at Calvary. We try to be pretty upfront about the reality of suffering and the reality of uh, the age we find ourselves in, this church age where your weakness is a vehicle where God shows his strength where God allows suffering uh, to, for a variety of reasons, uh, a bunch of reasons, and the reality is that God's people are not always saved from pain or persecution or loss. That's just reality. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why people suffer uh, and why they aren't always immediately rescued. There are a lot of uh, examples where God's people are miraculously rescued, happening all over the world, even today. But if you want to get into this topic more, then I'd recommend you head to our website, type suffering into the search bar, and you'll see some of the studies where we've you know, gone more in depth on this particular topic, either from the Psalms or Colossians or other passages. And so um, for our text this evening, we are reminded that a significant part of this issue of suffering and God's people and being safe in his hands, but also experiencing persecution and sometimes experiencing what looks like defeat from our vantage point, well, we're reminded that God has an ultimate goal he's working toward, right? He has a plan, he has a program that he is working out, and because of his long suffering, we're going to live suffering. And in the end, every single one of God's people will be rescued into heaven. Now, I wanna be rescued before that when I'm facing you know, pain or persecution or something like that, but what we can be sure of is that every single person will be rescued who belongs to the Lord. No one's going to you know, become a, an acceptable loss. Well, yeah, they didn't make it into heaven. In the end, God's people do have victory. And of course, the New Testament talks a lot about, hey, okay, so they kill you. Well, then you've won because you're in heaven and, and it, to, to die is gain, right? But that's a an answer that doesn't always satisfy when we're talking about this topic, even though it's true. And so we can be sure that in the end, every single one of God's people is going to be rescued into heaven where all will be made right. We talked about the idea of being given ownership of Disneyland, right? In one sense, suffering is like the traffic you have to endure on the way down to get to Disneyland. Uh, I don't say that to make light of our suffering, but I, that's sort of how Paul characterized it, right? He says, yeah, your light of affliction, that's like for a moment. And he's talking about real, incredible uh, opposition and suffering and pain and loss. And he says, yeah, it'll be gone pretty soon. And man, the way to glory. You know, if, if, if you told me, hey, if you drive down to Disneyland, they're gonna give Disneyland to you. I don't care if I'm parked on the five for two, two straight days, right? Who cares? After, I'll, I'll stay there. I'll, I'll, it'll take me a week. I'll go on a bicycle, if I have to, right? If you're telling me that I get to own Disneyland, no strings attached, and that it's all mine to enjoy for you know, the rest of my days, yeah, I would do whatever. Okay, some traffic uh, in, in the New Testament. One more quick note on verse 22 before we move on. The kingdom is not delivered until after the Antichrist is gone from the scene. 
Definitely not in the kingdom now. Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The empire on display here is by definition different from any other world empire that the world has ever known. And we're told that it will devour the whole earth. Now, when you study end times prophecy, you'll see that there are still conflicts. It's not that the beast has no, uh, the Antichrist will have opposition, right? There will be people who are against him, but his empire, his sway covers the whole earth. And this simply cannot be said of any world empire that in history. It certainly cannot be said of the Roman Empire or the ancient Grecian Empire from antiquity. In fact, historically speaking, the historic Roman Empire that has already come on the scene, the ancient Greek Empire, those are two that people who, who approach these texts differently, they say the, these visions were fulfilled by the Roman Empire, the first one, or they were fulfilled by the Grecian Empire under Alexander. Those two empires weren't even in the top list of biggest empires in the world. Uh, the largest contiguous empire in history was, don't look at the notes if you're looking at the notes. Anybody know? Largest contiguous empire in history? The Mongol Empire. Okay, The Mongol Empire covered a whopping 16% of the world's landmass and was all connected, right? And it governed about 25% of the world's population. That's the biggest one, contiguous one in history. Biggest empire period in history? Anybody know? The sun never sets on the British Empire. The British Empire, the largest world empire that history has ever known. It covered uh, 22% of the earth and over 20% of the world's population. And those are the two biggest. Now think about that. The two biggest world empires in human history, one of them covered 22% of the earth, one of them covered 16% of the earth, and at best, they were over 25% of the people of the world. This final beast ruled by the, uh, this final empire ruled by the Antichrist is going to hold the whole earth in its sway, everybody, and there will be opposition from different parts of the earth, but I mean, he's the head honcho during that time. That's a size and a scope that nothing's ever come close to. And for someone to come along and say, I think this was ancient Greece under Alexander, you think, what, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> you know, you believe that the Grecian empire portrayed here is, a li is literally going to come, but then all of the descriptions of this empire become figurative. It's like a sleight of hand trick that you have to take with the text. Verse 24, the 10 horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. So here we not only see how the Antichrist will rise to power by overthrowing three other rulers in the revived Roman Empire, we note that the ten kings must be ruling together at the same time. Again, sometimes people try to explain this way, and they say it was just the succession of the Caesars, ten Caesars in a row. But that doesn't work because... If it was just a succession of 10 guys, one after another, then the horn wouldn't have been able to uproot three at once. Rather, this revived Roman Empire will be at some point ruled over by 10 individuals at the same time. And note again the use of the word different when describing the little horn. Verse 25, he shall speak pompous words, meaning blasphemy, against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times in law. 
then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Okay, first let's address the suggestion that lots of critical scholars make, say, well, the little horn was actually a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, that's who Daniel's talking about. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was this ruler who back in about 170 BC made war with the Jews, desecrated the temple, he brutally persecuted God's people, and then they were miraculously delivered. Now, we're going to learn a lot about that guy in chapter 11, but we can say with confidence that he was not the little horn. For one thing, his persecution against the Jews was terrible, but relatively small in scale compared to the others that history has shown. Second Maccabees records that 80,000 Jews died in his furious attack against Israel. In the meantime, 1.1 million Jews died in Auschwitz all alone, right? So how can you come along and say, okay, this little horn, who's going to be worse than any other world ruler, and he's going to do more terrible things than anything that the world has ever seen? He was Antiochus Epiphanes. And then you fast forward a couple thousand years, and this guy Adolf Hitler comes along. Who's the worst guy? Whose empire was bigger? Who had more venom against God's people and was more successful at destroying them? And so uh, you can't make a historical case that Antiochus was different than any other anti-Semitic world ruler. And here Daniel is saying again and again, it's different, it's different, it's different. We need to look for somebody different. Now, more importantly, and the, the case is settled this way, because Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 that the abomination of desolation that Daniel will talk about and the book of the Revelation talks about was an event that hadn't happened yet. He says, hey, when you see this happen, do this, this, and this, right? Antiochus Epiphanes lived two centuries before Christ. So he's disqualified from being the little horn. So if you're reading in a book on Daniel and says, well, this is really just Antiochus Epiphanes, find yourself a better book. The little horn, we're told, will intend to, quote, change times and law, meaning he's going to try to mess with the Jewish rituals and the Jewish calendar. He follows the example of Jeroboam, remember back in 1 Kings 12, the nation of Israel split into two. Jeroboam was in the north. He didn't have Jerusalem. That means he didn't have a house of worship. And he said, well, that's going to be a problem. Here's what we'll do. I'll establish a new set of rituals. I'll establish a new calendar. And then people can worship up here. And so he set up a counterfeit system, right? Uh, and that's always what the devil's plan is, to set up a counterfeit uh, system that removes God from the equation. The Antichrist is the counterfeit Christ. The false prophet is the counterfeit uh, of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's all of these different things. The devil's always trying to counterfeit what God has said and what God has done and trick people into following after him. And the Antichrist, of course, will use the same tactics. We're told that the saints are given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. It's an important prophetic phrase. It's a term that will be used a few times in Daniel from here on out. Over in chapter 12, it's going to be used, and then we're told simultaneously that it is a period of 1,290 days. That is three and a half years. And so three and a half years of the great tribulation, beginning with the setting up of the abomination of desolation in the temple, where the Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel, goes into the temple, demands to be worshipped, and they say, we'd like to not worship you. He says, okay, then I'm going to kill all of you. And then from that point forward, there will be three and a half years uh, and it culminates at the end of the with the second coming of Christ to the earth. In Revelation 11 and 13, we're told this period of time is 42 months. Again, that equals three and a half years. 
And so here, time means a year, right? So we have time, one year, times, two more years, and half a time. So you have a total of three and a half years. And again, we love the uh, literal, futuristic approach to uh, reading prophecy, We, of course, acknowledge that Bible prophecy uses figures of speech, it uses analogies, it uses symbols, but they correspond to real, actual events. And this is one of those great examples. The Bible, in a variety of places, talks about the same period of time. In one place, it uses a pretty figurative symbol, time, times, and half a time. You could figure out, you know, using other stuff, you know, I guess they mean three and a half years. But then it's just to let you know that means this many days, this many months. It's three and a half years, right? And then to come along and say, well, does the Bible really mean? It says 1,290 days. Someone took a meticulous count of it. And so uh, this stuff's important to think about and to read with an honest approach as we read it. Verse 26, but the court shall be seated. They shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So again, this simply isn't the reality we find ourselves in, right? Can you honestly read those verses and say, oh yeah, that's what's happening right now? All dominions of the world, all the dominions of under heaven, all of creation serves God, obeys God, glorifies God. Well, that's how the kingdom is described in this vision, right? Uh, And yet so many dominions in the world right now, whether they be of man or of nature, are not serving and obeying the Lord. And it's because these events have not fully unfolded. They will, but they haven't yet. Uh, The kingdom has not been established yet. In the meantime, the angel ends where he began, proclaiming the wonder of the king who shares his kingdom with a very undeserving people. That's you and I. Verse 28 This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The weight of this vision actually showed on Daniel's face. It wore him out. You know, he wasn't glib about what God had revealed. Uh, Pastor David Guzik points out that Daniel obviously believed these prophecies would be literally fulfilled. He said, oh man, this stuff's gonna happen. Uh, And Daniel's heart was tender to the fact that that meant a lot of profound suffering for real people, real people who were going to experience uh, not only the persecution of this beast, but real people who were gonna experience the wrath of God because of their unbelief. And he wasn't happy about that. Uh, He was tender to it. Uh, It hurt his heart and he was deeply concerned and that's a great example for us to follow. Now, as we kind of round out this passage and come to it as people in the church age who are not going to see any part of the great tribulation, uh, what about us? You know, we're at a much better vantage point than Daniel was. We have the cross-references that he didn't have, right? Sort of reminds me of that first National Treasure movie back in 2004 at the beginning, the heroes of the story, they only have a little piece of of like a a code or a piece of information on this little pipe, right? Uh, And then they don't understand what it means or what it's leading to. Uh, But then they see a little more in the Declaration of Independence. And then it leads them to some letters written by Ben Franklin, which leads them to find these glasses, which gives them the lenses necessary to find what's really written on the Declaration, right? So think about Daniel. He received this vision, and, and he didn't have anything else to go on, very little else to go on. We know he had the book of Jeremiah, but as far as eschatology, end times events, I mean, he's the guy that got a lot of the visions, and this is the first one, you know, that he's receiving. 
he didn't have all of these other cross-references. Now, from where we sit, you know, we've got Ezekiel, we've got Zechariah, we have the Olivet Discourse, all of the book of the Revelation. Specifically speaking, when you read Daniel 7, you should also page over to Revelation 13 and 17. They speak about the same uh, events we're reading about here, and they give sort of additional layers and insight to this Old Testament vision that Daniel simply didn't have. And so we don't have to feel disheartened about what's coming because we can see it in full frame. In the meantime, there is a lot of discouragement and suffering that we face, a lot of things that are concerning, right? So in that way, we can identify with Daniel, hey, there's a lot of things that just weigh heavy on our hearts, the things that concern us. What do we do about that? Um, Prophecy, in the meantime, reveals that things in this world are not gonna get better and better. The world's gonna follow worse and worse into sin. And so knowing that, what are the lessons we can apply to ourselves from Daniel's example in this passage? Well, first of all, we should allow the angel's message to encourage us. The king is coming. Everything wrong will be made right one day, and we get to enjoy and experience all that the Lord will do. Heaven is coming for us, and so be encouraged and remember that and think about it. Second, be like Daniel there in verses 16 and 19. When he was deeply troubled, when he was confused, he asked for understanding. And, you know, we want to be people who are developing continually an honesty before God in our prayer lives and in our minds, recognizing that, yeah, I don't know everything, and that I can humbly go before the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I I don't know what's going on in this situation, but I want you to give me wisdom. Uh, Whatever wisdom you want to give me, Lord, I want it. You know, I know sometimes I'm too obstinate or proud to pray a prayer like that, but I shouldn't be. Daniel wasn't, and guess what? We're all beneficiaries of his humility before God to say, hey, I don't understand what's happening. Can you explain this to me? Uh, We are beneficiaries of his openness and honesty and humility before the Lord. And then third, Daniel endured and he pressed on despite the intense distress that he was under. You know, he didn't quit. This was in the first year of Belshazzar, if you went back to the first verse of the chapter. And we know that through and after those years, guess what? Daniel was still a man of prayer. He was still a man who studied God's word. He was still a man who was willing to serve when he was called upon. He was still a man who hoped in the Lord. He was still a man who was willing to die for his Lord. Despite his incomplete understanding, despite the discouragement that he was facing, despite these shocking developments, Daniel trusted in God and remained faithful to him. And so don't quit. Uh, Don't grow weary in well-doing. Even when suffering comes in like a nightmare sometime, remember the end of the book. Remember the inheritance that's coming. Any amount of traffic is worth enduring if they hand you the keys to Disneyland at the end of the trip. Amen?